Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When we started doing this podcast five days a week, a year ago this month, we had no idea how long we would carry it out or whether people would actually listen to it. So nobody really had made the long-term commitment that it would be. We're a year in now, and we're thinking we need to make some changes. I feel bad at how much extra work I've loaded onto my colleagues. So we're giving one a break. Chris Wernowski, who is our criminal justice editor and is often working until 8 and 8.30 at night, like he did last night and he did the night before and the night before that, uh, has done great duty here, but we're giving him a break for a while. He just has been a tremendous voice on this, going to miss his perspective. The guy reads more than anybody I know, and uh, I hope we can prevail upon him to return at some point to bring that perspective back. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the regulars, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston, and introducing the new regular, our columnist, Layla Atassi. Somebody who, as anybody in our newsroom knows, is given to strong opinions, which she very willingly (laughs) shares. Layla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I can't promise I'll be as funny as Chris Wernowski, but hopefully I'll live up to the standard of the podcast. (laughs) Nobody has the ability to turn a one-liner like Chris Wernowski. Yeah. Okay, well, we, we're starting, Layla, with one of the biggest stories of the week that you are responsible for. So let's get to it. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine leave obesity out of the conditions qualifying people for the coronavirus vaccine? Layla, you wrote a controversial column about this this week, <laughs> shaming the governor Just- for doing this. It was one of the CDC requirements that the, their recommendations that this be included. What did you find out in reporting this? All right. So the CDC has this advisory committee for immunization practices, which designed this very thoughtful set of recommendations for vaccine distribution in the states. And in those recommendations, they prescribe the following vaccination priorities. So in 1A, the oldest seniors, you've got, and also your healthcare workers and congregate living residents, which Ohio nailed it. 1B, well, nailed it is sort of an overstatement, but you know, that's, we did prioritize them. 1B, frontline essential workers, which we still haven't really gotten to in, in the state. Also, seniors 75 and older. 1C should have been ages 65 and older and those with health issues that increase risk of severe COVID-19 illness. So top of that list is obesity. We have known from the start of the pandemic that obesity exponentially increases the risk of severe COVID illness hospitalization and death. And in fact, the CDC just announced a couple of days ago, I think like the day before my column ran, this study that showed that 80% of those hospitalized for COVID in 2020 had obesity as an underlying condition. 
But the state of Ohio started out following the 1A recommendations, then took a detour and took care of teachers, which is another debate for another day. But after that kind of began cherry picking which high risk conditions it was going to prioritize in groups 1B and 1C. And the list that they ended up with was basically stripped of every high risk condition that people commonly argue are self-inflicted caused by lifestyle. So obesity, type 2 diabetes, even though type 1 made the, the, the cut, uh, COPD, a variety of heart conditions, smoking, things like that. And yet these are the conditions that the CDC recommends to vaccinate first because of the incredibly high risks they present. So this was the focal point of the column. And as you said, it, it really really, uh, you know, caught some people on fire. <laughs> All right. I'm going to I'm going to push back on this a little bit in a second, but but let, let, let's mine this a little bit. I mean, basically, we knew this would be divisive. We said on the front end, people are going to have divided opinions on this. There are people that refuse to accept that obese people are not the cause of their own fate. And so they, they're very their opinions are very strong. I should not have to wait to get the vaccine because somebody that doesn't take care of themselves has made themselves unhealthy. How is that fair to me? And as you pointed out in your column, you, you talked to experts that said obesity is not a choice. And let, let's face it, no one, no one chooses to be obese, right? Right, right. You know, I spoke with an obesity specialist at the Cleveland Clinic who explained that obesity is a, a highly complex metabolic disease with numerous possible causes. We're talking chronic stress and sleep deprivation and and poor quality of available food, endocrine disruption, hormonal responses, and, and heredity plays a huge factor. On top of all that, they face an exponentially higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19. It, it's, well, it's, so let, let's go there for a second. So you, you also, in, in making your points as we talked about this, said, look, it's not a lifestyle choice. But even if it were, Yes. They should get the vaccine anyway. What, what was your logic on that? Well, I spoke to a, a bioethicist at Case, Case Western Reserve University, who said that it's really dangerous and irresponsible to base public health judgments on how we view one's responsibility for their own diseases. And he pointed out a variety of circumstances in which we wouldn't deny medical care to people just because we think they're to blame for needing treatment. Examples like if someone's driving recklessly and they get into a car accident, we don't deny them treatment at the hospital. And, and another example that he threw out there that I thought was really on point was, you know, we don't tell anti-maskers who end up with COVID that that ventilator is not for you. So this is just a real dangerous, slippery slope when it comes to ethics. So I kind of see this debate as two pronged. There's there's one that, you know, there's all these people who just get hung up on this personal responsibility aspect of it. But even if we were to agree on that, public health decisions should not be made in such a way that it's based on, you know, our 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 judgments of others. So, okay. yeah. Right. But now I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, because from the governor's standpoint, and I heard from some people who talked to the governor yesterday, he believes that he did address obesity just by not by listing it as a condition that by listing what he did, that he is getting obesity, that that by the end of this next class, people 50 and over, I'm finally eligible, that 98% of the people who die from COVID will have been vaccinated. So that by going into the nursing homes, by going with the aged, by doing the conditions he did, he got to the people that had COPD largely. He got to the people who had obesity 
largely. What do you say to that? Well, so the state dodged my questions so <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> and and you know, and I even I even gave them the second chance to answer the question. So at first they said that oh, we consulted with lots of experts and doctors and specialists and data and the CDC's advisory committee. And this was all just vaguely thrown out there without. And and I was like, well, what experts, what data and how could you possibly have consulted the CDC's advisory committee recommendations? Because they're not reflected here at all. Then when I pushed back on them, they said, look, about 30 percent of seniors have obesity or diabetes. So in vaccinating seniors, we're taking care of people who have obesity, too. But that it's not like saying that, well, 90 percent of people with obesity are seniors. And so therefore, we've taken care of the problem. That 30 percent is reflected throughout the population. And we know that many people are getting sick who are under the age of you know, 65 or 75 who have obesity. I mean, I spoke there was a woman who emailed me who said that her husband has been terrified. Uh, he he ha- has obesity. And they have children who they have kept home from school, not necessarily because, oh, well, the teachers, you know, all, they were this woman told me, like, you know, there's been so much emphasis placed on getting the teachers vaccinated because that gets kids back in school. Well, not for our family, because sending our kids out in the world exposes my husband to this high risk. So this weekend, her husband is going to Pennsylvania because they're opening the doors to people from other states who've been locked out of their vaccination protocol. So he's traveling two hours to get a vaccine and he's he's reclaiming uh, his life and, and his children's lives uh, from the pandemic in that way. So, okay. I mean, it's just like, you know, anyway, can I can I add one thing? <laughs> Laura Johnston. This, this is Laura Johnston. They keep talking about death. And, and obviously that is something that you want to address. Right. But I mean, are obese people more likely to get sick and be long haulers? I feel like that's a quality of life issue aside from the death. Well, I, I look, I'm, again, I'm, I don't want to sound like an apologist for the governor. He was in a hard place. He had a very right. limited supply of vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think he, he hit a win with going for the old people because it greatly reduced the death rate. And in his in his argument, I dealt with a lot of the obesity without qualifying it. But it does give the cold, hard look that it's judgmental. And in I, the quote that you had, Layla, we've got to wrap this up. But in the quote that you had from the state, they pretty much admitted it. We're yeah. doing conditions that are congenital but, and unstated was we're not doing the things that are lifestyle choice. And that that I mean, that quote said it all to me when I read it in your original draft. And it's pretty clear they made the judgment. we got to move oh. on it's oh. this week in the CLE. <laughs> Bill Seitz has been working hard to ensure that First Energy gets the billions of dollars in spoils for its 60 million dollar <clears throat> investment in the House Bill six bribery scheme. But did he really stand up Wednesday? and say he sees no evidence of corruption in the bill's passage. Jane, I didn't think you could drop my jaw anymore on this story. What is this guy thinking? Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about this because you, you asked me yesterday, like, what, what's behind this? Like, what, why did he do this? And I would love to tell you the real reason. But the, the truth is, it's just completely a head scratcher. So I'll just tell you what I know and, and kind of set the stage. So as you said, Bill Seitz, he, he's been a major unapologetic supporter of the now-tainted House Bill 6 that granted a bailout to, to these two nuclear plants owned by a now former First Energy subsidiary, plus some guaranteed revenue for the utility. And uh, as, as we now know, according to guilty pleas that have already been entered in this massive federal corruption case, that $60 million in First Energy bribe money was used 
to put Larry Householder in the speaker's chair and and to pass this bill in 2019. So, you know, since these arrests of Householder and four others in this scheme, there have been numerous calls to to repeal this bill and court cases filed that have suspended parts of it. But the legislature has not fully acted to, I mean, acted to fully repeal it. But but recently they've taken some steps to try to kind of dismantle it piece by piece. And so on Wednesday, this is where Seitz spoke, the House voted to to repeal the nuclear subsidies as well as revoke this decoupling provision that, that guaranteed the revenue to First Energy and plus some language that would have made it easier for First Energy to, to pass a state test meant to prevent utilities from making excessive profits. But back to Bill Seitz, we recently reported he'd been working behind the scenes with the owner, the now owner of the nuclear plants to try to influence whatever reforms they got passed. But he gets up during the floor debate Wednesday and says it's false to insinuate that anything was corrupt in this chamber regarding HB6, hence the big jaw drop. His logic was that those who have pleaded guilty so far, which is a lobbyist, a top aide, a householder, <laughs> and the political nonprofit that helped funnel this $60 million in bribe money, that none of them were members of the House. Therefore, you know, no corruption should be tied to the House. And then he went on to acknowledge that Larry Householder, who's still a state representative in the House, is under indictment for racketeering. But then he tried to suggest that because there have been these delays in, in Householder's case, which both sides have signed off on and the judge, were somehow an indication that the feds didn't have a strong enough case. He almost said it like in a taunting way, saying, Maybe, you know, David DeVillers and the FBI aren't quite as certain about the charges they brought because they certainly aren't ready to bring them to court to be adjudicated. So, as I said, I can't figure out why why he did this. Think about it. I mean, you have an agency that was indicted in a racketeering charge for processing $60 million in bribe money to get this passed, and they admitted it. They said yes. That $60 million was bribe money that we used to get this passed. And he's standing on the floor saying there's no corruption in the House. I mean, the whole thing is corrupt. Everybody knows it's corrupt. And the crowning glory of yesterday was when Larry Householder himself voted to repeal Uh, the decoupling. I know. He he masterminded in this scheme, according to the government. I I don't get Bill Seitz. The guy is like a complete apologist for First Energy. Yeah, he always says outrageous things. Uh, That's not unusual. But this was just particularly. Taking $2 billion plus out of the pockets of Ohioans to give it to utilities with no strings. Half to First Energy, half to the nuclear plants. That's what he's championing. Two billion dollars taking it from us to give it to entities that have never proven they needed it, and he's still fighting for it. I mean, who does he yeah. represent? You know, one one thing I was thinking about this too. Remember, Andrew Tobias did a story a few couple months ago or so about uh, Neil Clark, one of the lobbyists who got indicted, and he was talking about these conversations that were recorded and with these mysterious people. This was like an offshoot of the House Bill 6 investigation where they these mysterious developers from Nashville came forward interested in a, like a right. hotel in Cincinnati. And um, Bill Seitz's name came up in that. He, he apparently had drinks with these developers. So may, maybe he's kind of sore that his name came up in that. I don't know. I mean, he hasn't been implicated in anything, but... You know, I don't know. Maybe he's just mad about that. 
how can he look voters in the eye and pretend he's representing them? It's this week in the CLE. How is University Hospitals working to help you if you get a mild case of the coronavirus? Laura Johnson, this wasn't a big story, but it's interesting. It is. University Hospitals, along with four other hospitals, is testing the first drug for mild symptoms of COVID. The idea is to recover faster, avoid going into the hospital. It's a drug called Upamostat. If it is found safe and effective, then the U.S. Food and Drug Administration could approve it in 2022. It's an antiviral that blocks replication of the coronavirus and entry into healthy cells. It may protect against tissue damage and the long-haul patients who have these symptoms for months and months and can't get rid of them, which that sounds like a really big win because so far the effort in hospitals has been focused on keeping people from dying, but you really don't want to be suffering from it for months either. So the thing is you have to have COVID to be in this trial that university hospitals is doing. And so um, you must be 18 years or older. You don't require hospitalization. You can use a smartphone. You get your test at UH, and then you go through a trial with them to see if it works. Okay. Interesting. It'd be, it'd be helpful to have that drug once it's available. It's this week in the CLE. How might the confirmation Wednesday of Marsha Fudge as chief of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development be a big deal for Northeast Ohioans living in poverty? Layla Tassi, you know all about poverty from all the work you did on a Greater Cleveland a few years back. You've done a lot of work on housing challenges for people seeking housing vouchers. I was pretty excited when Marsha Fudge was nominated for this position because she knows what we face in Northeast Ohio. What might change? So Marsha Fudge has has pledged to carry forth uh, the the Biden agenda to help build more affordable housing and and discriminatory practices in the housing market to ensure families, especially families of color, can buy homes and, in her words, punch their ticket to the middle class. She also said, has said, you know, a lot about the housing crisis that COVID created with millions of families homeless or facing housing insecurity on account of all the financial turmoil that we've seen helping families overcome that is among her her chief priorities. But I've said this in, in past columns, and I'll, I'll say it again. <laughs> the, the most meaningful policies that I think she can usher in would be a universal housing voucher program that subsidizes housing for anyone who needs it, and also a federal source of income protection that would ban landlords from rejecting those vouchers. Both of those policies are prominently featured in Biden's housing platform, and those two policies would change so many lives in Northeast Ohio and beyond, really. Universal vouchers theoretically should end evictions of low-income families for non-payment of rent because vouchers pay landlords through direct deposit and and the the value of them adjusts as uh, one's income rises or falls. Uh, so, you know, and, and I can't say it would completely end homelessness because there's so many causes for homelessness, but it certainly would have a huge impact on it. But- yeah, one of the things you've discovered, though, with housing vouchers is the ridiculous amounts of red tape that, that you, mm-hmm. the people just have to jump through so many hoops. And there, the, even though there are some municipalities that have rules for allowing people to use their vouchers, you found that a lot of them weren't even being forced. Landlords didn't know about them. I mean, don't we need kind of an overhaul of this entire system to make it easier? Oh, absolutely. Marsha Fudge would have to address those bureaucratic problems for sure to make it move along more smoothly for landlords as well. Right now, I hear often from landlords who tell me that CMHA 
held up the approval process for months. And and that leaves the landlord without income during that time. And, and that's really not fair. So there are a lot of and when I you know, when you ask CMHA about uh, about that stuff, they, they kind of defer often to HUD and say these are you know federal rules that we're following and this is the process and and we it would require HUD to make some some pretty big changes so i i see lots of opportunity for streamlining the process that would incentivize landlords to want to be a part of the voucher process there are lots of landlords who say i have declined to participate in the vouchers not because i i'm discriminatory against vouchers or the people who have them but because it is such a hassle. And I, yeah. I do believe I do believe that in, in many cases. Yeah, it's a it's a nightmare. I mean, it could be an answer, but but they've got to clean it up. You are listening to this week in the CLE. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine headed for a big showdown with the legislature over the governor's power to issue health orders, something he has done throughout the pandemic? Jane Cahoon, the Republicans in the legislature just do not want the governor to be able to make me wear a mask. Correct. There is legislation that's headed to DeWine's desk that would make it a lot more difficult for him to issue these health orders. It's called Senate Bill 22, passed the House by a 57 to 35 vote. And then it it also passed a final vote by the Senate, 25 to 8. Now, they've they've tried this similar legislation before and, and DeWine's veto held up because they couldn't get the override done in, during the lame duck. But this time we have enough senators voting for the legislation that would give them the, the supermajority they need to override a, you know, a veto that DeWine has, has promised. It did fall three votes short of the 60 votes needed in, in the House, but five House Republicans were absent for that vote. So House Speaker Bob Cup said that he's absolutely positive that they have enough votes to to override. And the Senate president, Matt Huffman, said he's going to schedule an override vote as soon as he can if if DeWine vetoes the bill. So this doesn't, bill... Would, but doesn't ahead. some of the power for the governor to do this emanate from the state constitution? The legislature can't pass yes. laws that overturn things in the constitution, right? There is a chance that this bill won't hold up constitutionally. You are right. Some uh, Democrats who were against it have cited this analysis from the Legislative Service Commission, which is the legislature's nonpartisan research arm. And they found that that some provisions could be challenged in court on constitutional grounds under the you know separation of powers between right. the legislative and executive branches. The Republicans insist that they, you know, other states give lawmakers this kind of oversight. They need a seat at the table. And this is perfectly reasonable. But as you said, these are the same people who don't wear masks. And, um, you know, one of these guys said the other day during a committee hearing, you know, where's the evidence that masks work? I rarely rarely wear a mask and I haven't gotten COVID-19. So that's the, I mean, that's the mentality you're dealing with. So on the other hand, the Democrats, you know, like Teresa Fetter of Toledo, she said, passing irresponsible legislation like this while Ohioans are dying is arrogant to a level that I've never seen in in 20 years. So there are some really strong feelings. There was a heated debate. But as I said, it's on the way to DeWine and, you know, the showdown's coming. Look, we, we've talked repeatedly that the public health laws passed after the 1918 pandemic that, that created health boards that, with no accountability have been pretty much a disaster. They haven't been accountable. They've been really inept. And when the legislature first started talking about this, 
they said, we want to take a look at health policy and what the best way to do it is. This isn't that. This isn't a a thorough review of the best way to keep people safe in a pandemic. It's a knee-jerk reaction from from far-right loons that don't want the the governor to be able to keep people safe. The governor saved lives. What the governor did saved lives. And you you can point to a number of steps he took that did it. Yeah, he completely botched the, the, the vaccine rollout to people, and we've heard nothing but agony from it. Leila Tassi has written a good <laughs> bit about it. He, he, he couldn't fix the unemployment system, but he can legitimately say he saved a large number of lives, and they want to stop him from being able to yeah, do it. Th- this bill would give the lawmakers the authority to cancel any health order that lasts longer than 30 days. So think about that. It's just shameful behavior by the legislature. I can't wait till we end gerrymandering because these guys are just clowns. I mean, it's the same legislature that keeps Larry Householder in and has taken more than six months to finally address the corrupt House Bill 6, and this is what they rush in. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has the Solon High School principal been cleared of an anonymous allegation that she had an inappropriate relationship with a student 15 years ago? Laura Johnston, we talked about this yesterday and said it was pretty preposterous that you would sully somebody's reputation based on an anonymous allegation from 15 years ago. It seems like the publicity shamed those that were doing this investigation into wrapping it up quickly. Yep, it's over. She's completely vindicated. The Solon prosecutor will not file charges against her. He said, I quote, I reviewed the matter and it found no criminal activity. So the lawyer for Aaron Short, the principal, said he hoped that she wouldn't be stigmatized by these baseless allegations and that she's done nothing wrong. Superintendent Fred Bolden had sent a letter to all the school staff, student families, back on February 23rd, announcing that she'd been placed on leave amid this investigation. So she was on paid leave for about three weeks. But she's totally vindicated. And I believe what we talked about yesterday, that it was a former student who created a fake email account to send this allegation that something happened in 2005, 2006. I I believe that still holds up at this point. And I just hope that this doesn't wreck her reputation, that, you know, people aren't talking about saying, well, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, because it seems like it was completely made up. Well, I'm still stunned that they would take this kind of action humiliating action based on an anonymous complaint over an allegation from long, long ago. You would think if you get the anonymous allegation, you might look at it. But I just, you know, you have the right to face your accusers in this country. And she really didn't. And and it was humiliating what happened to her. Weird the way they handled it, that the principal or sorry, I think the superintendent asked a police lieutenant to investigate it, but they never opened like an actual incident report and there's no police report on it. Yeah. So yeah, it's like you could have done that and never, I don't know. I, I should disclose again that <laughs> I, my wife does work for the Solon school system. You're listening to this week in the CLE with the lovely weather we're seeing this week. We wondered whether the overwhelming demand for new bicycles that began in the pandemic is continuing. Leila Tassi, Pete Krause took a deep look at this and what did he find? Well, yeah, he discovered that that many shop owners are still reporting dwindling inventory, back orders and waiting lists and things like that. And uh, this obviously stems from people viewing bicycling as one of the few fun things we can do <laughs> during the pandemic. And also manufacturing in China uh, being unable to keep up because they were they too were recovering from from COVID. Pete reported that Asian manufacturers are back up to speed, but the vendors are still working through the backlog of orders and things like that. You know, personally, 
I learned of this backlog the hard way back in June when I waited until the very last minute to fulfill my six-year-old's birthday wish. Oh, wow. I was willing to take any bike on the planet at that point. I mean, I, we, were, we were looking everywhere, used bikes and you know, I I would have uh, you know I would have uh, dredged one up from the bottom of the lake if, uh, <laughs> if that's what I would take. So uh, Jane and I are are bike riders who've done a lot less of it because we don't trust people who are texting and it scares the hell out of us to be on the road with them. But yeah. Laura and Layla, your moms, you got kids and you had to do activities. Have you done a lot more bike riding in the past year than you had done previously? I I mean, my kids are, are on their bikes. And what I really like about where we live is that you can ride, you know, to go get ice cream if you want. So I don't think we've done a ton of like, put the bikes on the car. We don't even have a car rack <laughs> to, to put them on and go to the Metro parks or the towpath. But we've ri- ridden them around town a lot to the tennis courts all the time. And I just appreciate I always feel like I'm on vacation when I'm riding my bike with my kids to the tennis courts. I feel like so many people only get to do that when they're, they're not, you know, at home. And I really appreciate that. It's a great feeling. In in our family, in our family, my husband uh, during e-learning became the gym teacher. So (laughs) he would take our kids out with their scooters and their bikes and set up obstacle courses in (laughs) open parking lots and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, scream at them to whatever, (laughs) barking out commands. Uh, But, you know, we had a baby this past year. So one of us and it was almost always me would have to hang back while the other would go get to have that kind of fun. So this year, baby gets to go in the a little baby carrier because she's old enough to wear a helmet. <laughs> okay, so We're doing it as a family. All right. Well, I, I hope people are able to find them because there was a lot more bike riding. You could see it last year and it's good for people to be out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's end on a goofy note. Is Geraldo Rivera joining the race for U.S. Senate on the Republican <laughs> side? Jane Cahoon, we have Josh Mandel, who has been dishonest for much of his career. We got Jane Timken fighting with Josh Mandel to see who can be the Trumpiest. We have business magnate Bernie Moreno, who has posted all sorts of embarrassing things on social media. Can this get goofier? (laughs) Yes, it can, Chris. So Seth Richardson talked to Geraldo yesterday and he said he's seriously considering it. He's going to do a little listening tour. You might know that he lives in, in Shaker Heights. So he sees himself as a Republican in sort of the mold of Anthony Gonzalez, who's, you know, kind of a common sense bipartisan type of guy, not a flamethrower. He also had voted for Trump's impeachment. So Rivera, though, says he's been friends with Trump a long time. And even though he doesn't approve of the January 6th riot and and Trump's role in that, that uh, he thinks he could bring Republicans together. Now, um, just a funny side note, this immediately led to speculation like, does that mean on the Democratic side, Jerry Springer's going to come back and, <laughs> and run for something? Like, wouldn't that be entertaining? Well, um, actually, if Amy Acton's in, I don't. I think she. Here, look. Here's the thing. I was thinking about this yesterday, and you know, with with Josh Mandel and Jane Timken trying to prove that they're they're the most loyal to Trump, with no regard to the needs of people. I mean, you know, Josh Mandel just keeps posting ridiculous things on Twitter, shameful things that would endanger health. And and that's all they care about is the approval of one guy. It's not an oath to the Constitution. It's an oath to the Donald. I, Geraldo Rivera might, out of those four, be the sanest candidate for the Republicans <laughs> to elect. It's it's interesting to reflect on that, isn't it? I, I mean, it seems like he he would he he's not knee jerk. He's not. I want to be the he'll look at issues. He may have 
wacky opinions on him, but but at least it's something he's thinking about, which you don't really have with the others. And wouldn't that be a hoot if the most reasonable candidate in the Republican primary were Geraldo Rivera, you know, who who took us into Al Capone's vault? Who knows? <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. Lauren Jane, I did not want to imply at the beginning of the podcast that you also don't work really hard. And, and Jane, I was yeah, don't think that went unnoticed. And Jane, I was thinking, I have an idea. We'll give you your break in September. Aww. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. 